and this is the Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. In the midst of a national reckoning with white supremacy and this country's colonial history, indigenous people here are demanding a new relationship with the United States government, one that would honor the traditional, legal, and moral rights of Native nations. To drive that message home, literally, a group of Native organizers traveled with a 25-foot totem pole this summer from the Lumi Nation on the northwest Washington state all the way to Washington, D.C., stopping for ceremonies at sacred sites and in communities under threat and gathering messages along the way for the Biden-Harris administration. Through my friend Judith LeBlanc, director of the Native Organizers Alliance, which co-organized this project, I got an invitation to travel with the totem pole for part of its journey. In this episode, we're going to hear about the group's historic meeting with Interior Secretary Deb Holland in Washington and hear how Native movements are changing, among other damaging myths, the Thanksgiving story. We'll also learn where a red road to the future might lead us if we followed it and why that just might be a good idea for the planet and all who live here. And I'll share a few thoughts on Kyle Rittenhouse, colonialism and self-defense. Judith LeBlanc, what a pleasure to have you with us. My thanks, first off, for inviting me to come with you on some of this extraordinary totem pole journey. The Red Road to Washington, D.C. was a huge experience for me. The totem pole journeys have happened before, but this one was special. How so and how did you get the idea of teaming up with the Lummi Carvers this time around? What made this totem journey so special is the political moment. The fact that Native grassroots political power has finally been acknowledged as a result of our historic turnout in the 2020 elections. The Lummi Cavis called me and said, after the election results were in, they said, we've got to take a totem. We've got to take a totem to DC to, to congratulate Biden. And I said, we need to remind Biden of his ancestral responsibilities. And so we did. Before we go further, though, I want to play a piece about the Red Road to D.C. that was created by one of the co-sponsors of the journey, an organization called the Natural History Museum, which isn't the museum you're thinking of, but you can learn more about it at our website. The piece is narrated by Lumi Tribal Council member Freddie Lane. For the last 20 years, the House of Tears Carvers of the Lummi Nation have transported totem poles around the world as a way of bringing communities together and highlighting issues. This year is our biggest journey yet. A large coalition of indigenous and non-indigenous groups have gathered and supported this project where we're driving a 25-foot totem pole across the country, stopping at many sacred and historic places under threat from dams, climate change, and resource extraction. As the totem pole moves, it carries the spirits of the land it visits. It's like a battery that charges as it travels. As people touch it, they give it power. 
as it moves on, it shares that power with the next community it visits. This totem pole draws lines of connection between communities fighting for the land and for the future. And against an understanding of development that has been pushing the world towards extinction. The journey will end in Washington, D.C., where it will be delivered to the Biden administration as a strong and important message. It's a reminder of the promises that were made to the first peoples of these lands and waters and to the responsibility we all share to safeguard the sacred sources of life, earth, water, sky, for the generations to come. People do not realize that our sacred sites are not only uh, endangered because of uh, fossil fuel extraction or very poor uh, development plans, but also from climate chaos. And so everyone really has a stake in the protection of our constitutional right, but we had to remind people, and that's why we brought communities together to update where things are at in the state of play and protecting their sacred site, but also to tie them together with a, a red road to see how we can continue to work together to protect all sacred sites. Crystal Echo Hawk is an enrolled member of the Pawnee Nation, national narrative change leader, and president and CEO of Illuminative, another co-sponsor of the Red Road to DC. One of the most important things about the the Red Road totem pole journey, you know, is that it originated with, you know, a vision from the Lummi House of Tears carvers, right? Um, and this amazing, extraordinary, you know, totem pole. And I think in, you know, the carvers, the Lummi carvers really understood how much Mother Earth, right, is is really deeply under threat. The totem pole journey was also just part of the, the grand vision of, of Judith LeBlanc and the Native Organizers Alliance, really connecting it with the, the movements on the ground and these movements to, to really build power. Where Illuminative got involved was understanding about, well, how do we take this up to the next level? How do we begin to really shift the narrative and help Americans understand that when Native peoples are taking a stand, whether it's No Dapple at, at Standing Rock or, you know, KXL and thinking about, you know, the, the Fort Belknap, you know, Indian community or the Rosebud Sioux Reservation, these key battles, right, that oftentimes people just think, well, that's a, that's a Native American issue, that we're defending the, the water and the land for tens of millions of Americans. What shape were the indigenous communities in that you went through, that you visited? People are up against some big, big things, right? Whether it's their state governments, federal government, you know, major corporations, local communities. I mean, you know, the oil and gas industry, you know, I, I learned so much when I went to Chaco Canyon and, and just, you know, we met at one of the Navajo chapter houses. And I remember as we were pulling in, people were telling me that oftentimes be prepared, you know, to get headaches and to kind of feel nauseous because of the methane and the things that were being released into the air from the fracking and just hearing the stories, you know, horror stories of, of you know, families who had been desperately harmed and their health impacted. There's devastation, but I think that people are feeling our power as native peoples and feeling our power when we're joined by our allies. And I think we're also understanding that we're coming into a, a new era where we have a lot more hope with, you know, Secretary Holland 
Kaplan's sitting there at Interior and, you know, we got to rejoice over the decision around, you know, bears ears and other things. So I, I think I felt like such a, um, just inspired. What is it that led you to focus on narrative and media representation? I understand it was a bunch of, a, a body of research that you undertook. You know, I've been an, an organizer and an activist my my entire career. And I think it was just reaching a point back in kind of 2015 of just sheer frustration um, and constantly feeling like our issues as Native peoples were just never taken seriously and not included. And so the Reclaiming Native Truth Project, which I, you know, I founded and co-led between 2016 and 2018, really looked at what are the dominant narratives in this country and how do they shape the the perceptions of not only the American public, right, and the sort of diverse demographics around that, but, you know, key institutions. Give us some examples of the findings, maybe things that even surprised you. There was a significant percentage of Americans, particularly, you know, in places like the East Coast or, or places that don't have any proximity to reservations that people aren't even sure if Native Americans still exist anymore. As we began to kind of dive in and unpack, we began to understand that big systems such as, you know, media, entertainment, K through 12 education and and our and our federal government were really these big systems that were perpetuating the erasure. And we began to understand that the erasure and the stereotypes and misinformation really impacted policy and, and key, um, key things that impact the lives of, of, of Native Americans and tribes every single day. Now, you've used the term ancestral responsibilities a few times. Can you talk about the actual treaty basis on which this relationship stands? When I say ancestral responsibilities, I'm talking about our collective ancestors. Nelson Mandela is an ancestor of mine. And we all have a relationship to place Mother Earth, where we live, where we walk, where we work, where we love. For Native people, we have a special relationship with the federal government because we are nations within this nation. And when people talk about treaty rights, it's about restoring the rights that have been denied for so long, the rights that were determined by treaties signed in exchange for land, signed because we were forced off land, signed because we were hoping to fight another day. And they remain documents that even a right-wing controlled uh, Supreme Court continue to uphold because they're constitutionally guaranteed. But many of the rights that were established by treaty with these tribal nations are human rights, the right to healthcare from birth to death, the right to housing, the right to education. So Treaty rights are an important cornerstone for achieving racial justice in the present, but in the future, they will be cornerstones for the fight for human rights, for the achievement of what the rightful role of government should be for all peoples. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. That was Anakwet, or Guy Writer, Executive Director of Menakanakom Community Rebuilders and a member of the Menominee Indian Nation. 
and Mari Margal, Executive Director of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, an international organization that works to write the rights of nature into law and devise ways to implement and enforce those rights. I spoke with both this past summer on the banks of the Great Missouri River, one of the stops on the Red Road to D.C., a coast-to-coast totem pole journey from the Lumination in Washington State to Washington, D.C. You can watch this special and see the gorgeously carved totem pole on its travels at our website. That's lauraflanders.org. While you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter to receive information on all our live talkbacks and web exclusives, including uncut interviews and my commentaries. Next, Judith LeBlanc joins me to talk about the special potential the totem pole journey holds for the U.S. federal and native nation relationship. And we'll hear Deb Holland, United States Secretary of the Interior and member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe, as well as Faith Spotted Eagle, Ihunk Tanwin, Dakota Elder, and Braveheart Society Kunzi member, speaking on the National Mall before the Capitol in one of the largest gatherings of indigenous people and tribal leaders in Washington, possibly ever. But first, here's Miracle by Superman, featuring Maimona Yosef, a member of the Absoluka Nation from his album Illuminatives. I say a prayer and put it down for what it's worth For those who oppose and only see color first For my two sons, my daughter and wife And the father of lights, I started the fight Slaughtering mics, ready to die like a martyr tonight With my fist to the sky, saying water is life And yo, it takes a nation and millions to hold us back This is treaty land, we see these scams They only know the facts, evil collapses and cowards in fear The hour is near, let the world unite with the power of prayer Yeah, a family rise Shine happily, a masterpiece. Put my whole body glistening. Hey, we still here? Is there anybody listening? By the banks of the Missouri River in South Dakota, homeland of the seven tribes of the Ocheti Sakawan Sioux Nation, the totem journey brought people together to consider the rights of nature, a concept born out of indigenous philosophy that's gaining traction in law. Mari Margal is the executive director of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, which established the first rights of nature laws in the world a decade ago, and is working with communities all around the globe. Today's environmental laws um, don't recognize that nature possesses any inherent right even to be, to exist. Um, And that means that nature is treated essentially as a inanimate, not living thing or property or commerce and those environmental laws regulate how we use or exploit nature so we legalize the very things that tribal nations and communities are trying to stop such as fracking or mining or pipelines. We see the consequence. We see of course accelerating climate change, accelerating species extinction, accelerating ecosystem collapse with coral reefs and other ecosystems. And so with that, we're beginning to see sort of a new understanding, a shift in consciousness, if you will, that something really fundamental needs to change. It's not about making these existing environmental laws better. It's about changing our basic relationship with the natural world, human Western relationship with the natural world, which means changing how we govern ourselves toward nature, but also changing how nature itself is treated under the law from being this inanimate, dead thing, property, to becoming rights-bearing. Anakwat, 
or Guy Ryder, is a member of the Menominee Indian tribe of Wisconsin. Uh, the Menominee River separates the state of Wisconsin and upper Michigan, creates a natural border, but more importantly, that's where our people come from. We've been trying to fight this uh, Canadian company on all facets uh, of everything we could possibly challenge. We've been challenging. We try to incorporate you know, our identity into our strategy. And the other thing I, I think is, is very important is, is just paying attention to our earth and you know, watching how animals, um, the strategies they, they take to protect their home or protect their young ones, you know, we want to use those, we want to utilize those same strategies because obviously they're successful or they wouldn't be here. I think um, rights of nature give us an opportunity to take that sort of understanding, to take that sort of approach and put it into a, a legal framework that hopefully um, we can use to, to help defend some of our, our sacred areas. We're gonna keep that momentum and carry that, you know, and go from stop to stop and, and gather all that good medicine and, and leave good medicine, you know, and, and uh, hopefully when we get to DC that we'll have legitimate consultation and we'll have legitimate talks with, with some of the leadership there. This red road has special potential in these days. That was something that I took away from the totem journey. And it has to do with the potential of that U.S. federal native nation relationship. In the middle of that sits Interior Secretary Deb Holland, to whom you brought the totem with its messages gathered from across the country. Can you talk about that meeting, the significance of Deb, um, and what do you mean when you say you're looking for a new grounding for this relationship in the 21st century? Judith LeBlanc, Executive Director, the Native Organizers Alliance. Right now, it's a suggestion, it's an executive order that departments of the government should consult with tribes. The history of consultation, starting with the Clinton administration, is that it, it's something that's suggested and many departments just check the box by sending an email. It's become weaponized, the idea of consultation. They listen and then they go back to DC and make a decision that's potentially very damaging. So alongside of, of the protection of all sacred sites, we began a popular education campaign on, on the right to be at the decision-making table and to achieve, therefore, the standards set by the UN the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which outlines the fact that nations should relate to Indigenous nations as equals and ensure prior informed consent on all decisions that affect our lives. We believe this is the next logical step if we are truly to reckon with the rate systemic racism in this in the history of this country. When the totem pole arrived in Washington, D.C., indigenous people and their allies gathered on the National Mall in front of the Capitol, probably the biggest such gathering in modern times. Tribal leaders from across the country rose to the podium to bring their people's messages to the federal government. Among those was Faith Spotted Eagle, longtime activist, Ihanktanwin Dakota Elder, and Braveheart Society, Member. At this point, more of us need to come together in a very organized, best method of all to ask for co-management of these areas. So we have to go over to that house and be constantly involved and support the tribal relative 
our matrilineal leader, Holland, because she needs, she's not gonna be able to do all those things that we're asking her of. So that leaves it to us on the ground and the front line. Everyone in Congress is a treaty signer. We have to pass that word and make them accountable that they signed those treaties as a citizen of this nation and it has to be enforced. The meeting with the Secretary of the Interior was historic. Tribal elected leaders, traditional leaders, and grassroots community organizers met with the Secretary of the Interior to bring the messages that had been at the heart of this initiative, but to also bring her up to date of what's going on in the places where this work is going on and to let her know she's not alone. United States Secretary of the Interior and member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe, Deb Holland. Because we're coming together in a new era, an era of truth, of healing, of growth, an era in which our indigenous knowledge is valued and respected, in which indigenous leadership has a seat at the table to make decisions about our communities, in which we have an opportunity to rise above the challenges our people face and build a brighter future for all of us. You're celebrating Secretary Holland, but at the same time in this season, people will have seen significant protest by Native Americans uh, outside her office. Can you help us understand this? Representation is important. It's critical, but it's not the destination. And now we continue to organize at the grassroots level around those issues that are of concern and are housed within the framework of the Department of the Interior. I think that protest people were feeling that that with line three and and that that they had reached the end of the road but we're seeing deb's presence in that department as, as being a, a very powerful motivator to begin the change structural reforms that we need you participated in an indigenous futures survey that i would love you to talk about because it spoke to some of what i imagine were the the hopes and dreams that people put on the totem as they were invited to by the Lumi Carvers as it traveled across the country. Crystal Echohawk, Illuminative founder and CEO. It was a national survey of about 6,400 people from all 50 states representing 401 tribes. I think what we heard, you know, top issues for, for Native people in this country as we think about right now in the future are things like protecting missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and, and members of the LGBTQ and two-spirited community. Environmental concerns are a major issue as well as language and cultural revitalization and, and mental health and access to quality healthcare. I think we also heard a lot over resoundingly from native peoples that we're tired of the erasure. We're tired of the way that we get portrayed in the media and our lack of representation. And so I think this is why more and more you see more organizing across this country. And now we have these breakthrough moments. Like we now have two amazing native TV shows that are critically acclaimed and really successful. Um, and we're starting to see all kinds of different representations. And we saw, you know, based on the survey last year, right prior to the election, that in the previous you know, major election in 2018, that we had more than 70% of Native people reporting that they voted. And then you see in 2020, what an impact our people had. And so I think that you know it's an exciting time. And the more that we can amplify 
contemporary Native voices and issues, especially as we look ahead to the midterm elections and the next presidential in 24, that Native peoples are going to continue to have a major impact in this country. I think we're speaking at the very beginning of November, which is Native American History Month. And I put in Native American History Month in my Google search bar and got quite a surprise. Is, is that your work? No, I think it's collective work. I mean, we definitely have had good relationships with Google, but I think what I love is that there's just been growing momentum um, over the last couple of years around the work that, that Illuminative and so many of us do across Indian country to really promote our, our visibility, to really invite people in, to really learn about who we are today. Is there any last comment you'd like to leave us with about the tools perhaps that exist um, at your website or elsewhere that might help people of all sorts um, do better at this work? Yeah, absolutely. I just, I want to encourage people to follow Illuminative um, on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, and we, you know, such a core part of our mission is about educating um, and building relationships with allies. So people will find all kinds of wonderful information. We're, we're calling you in and not calling you out. Books to read, films, latest you know contemporary issues. And so we just really invite people to not only follow us and to lean in and, and learn, but just to really start to think about how can you be a good ally in your, your own community and, and the places that you work and live. So we're broadcasting this during Thanksgiving week. Tell us where you think we are in, in progress from that old myth that white people colonizers developed of the grateful colonized person and where we need to go, where the red road might take us. Thanksgiving is a time when people get together and have good food. I know some Indians don't celebrate. I love to get together with people and have good food and talk about what's gone on in our lives. That's a beautiful thing. But the truth is that the myth of Thanksgiving is being busted wide open. People are questioning. That's the first step towards healing and towards political change. So I hope Thanksgiving is a time when people reflect on how it is that they can be good relatives, not only with indigenous people, but with all of their neighbors and all of the people who, especially at this moment, are suffering and are at a moment of crisis. Self-defense. We hear it a lot these days, usually claimed by those who are armed when they kill someone who's not. Right now in Wisconsin, juries deliberating in the case of a young man who came to Kenosha, a town he didn't know in a state that wasn't his, paraded around with a military-style rifle and then shot three people dead when they perceived him as a threat. He claimed self-defense, but he'd behaved like someone in a Western, said one of the prosecuting attorneys early on. And in a sense, it's kind of true. When you think about colonial history, going to a place you don't know, parading around, using heavy weaponry to kill those who resist, it is this nation's history. Just ask the Native Americans of the West. But to bring History into this story isn't to drag something foreign there. We're not dragging history into the moment. It's here, with us, at every moment. Naming our history isn't doing anything other than saying what we have done before. And if we don't like how that's played out, we have a chance to do something different. As Judith LeBlanc says, 
The present is where past and future meet. We have a chance here to change the future and become the ancestors our descendants might be proud of. It's worth thinking about. For more information on this week's guests, along with a suggested reading list and links to related episodes to explore in our archives, go to patreon.com forward slash The LF Show. That's also where you'll find an invitation to watch the premiere of our episodes on YouTube, 11.30 a.m. Sundays, and participate in live chats afterwards or on Instagram. All those details are at patreon.com forward slash The LF Show, which is also where you can support the show by joining our precious Patreon partner team. We don't take corporate or government sponsorships. We are independent. What does that mean? We depend on you. Thanks to our Patreon partners, this show can remain commercial-free and accessible to over 200 million households on public television, community radio, and as a podcast. Want to become a precious Patreon partner? You can at patreon.com forward slash the LF show simply by making a monthly contribution of $3, $5, or $12 a month. You are making an enormous difference in our ability to predict the future and move ahead. Thanks again to all of our partners. You are the brick and mortar at the foundation of the Laura Flanders Show. So thanks for listening. Thanks for giving. And to everybody else, thanks for joining me. Stay kind. Stay curious. Till the next time, I'm Laura.